Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll find out if science and religion can be friends, how to optimise your caffeine to optimise yourself, and spineless sex. But first up, here's the news. Artificial sweeteners make you fat, and sugar keeps you slim. Psychologists at Purdue University's Ingestive Behaviour Research Centre fed rats yoghurt sweetened with saccharin and yoghurt sweetened with sugar. They followed by giving both groups of rats as much ordinary rat food and water as they wanted. Five weeks later, the rats eating artificially sweetened yoghurt had eaten more food, gained more weight, and put on more body fat than the sugar-sweetened yoghurt eaters. For the next experiment, the researchers fed the sugar-eating rats a high-kilojoule chocolate pudding treat and found that they ate less afterwards. The saccharine-eating rats ate more after eating the chocolate pudding. Their conclusion is that in the natural environment, there is a direct relation between how sweet something is and how many kilojoules of energy it will feed you. We use the sweetness to tell us when to start feeling satisfied that we've had enough to eat. The body learns that this signal of enough energy is false and stops feeling satisfied and you keep on eating. This means it's likely that the tradition of ending a meal with dessert is a natural way to turn off your appetite. Also from the orgasm news front, new scientists report that the G-spot is real after all. Not all women's vaginas grow in the same way. Ultrasound images show that women who report enjoying vaginal orgasms without stimulation of their clitoris, have thicker tissue between the vagina and urethra. This is just where the G-spot was reported to be. The New Scientist article has pictures and diagrams of how to reach this spot on the inside front wall of the vagina. The women who only had orgasms through clitoral stimulation had no visible sign of this thickening on their ultrasound image. They suggest that the spongy tissue might be trained to grow with repeated stimulation so that women who don't have visible G-spots may either grow theirs like a muscle with training, or at least swell it up enough to increase their pleasure with different sexual techniques. The drug companies are also interested in the idea that testosterone could be used to make the G-spot grow. There's currently a study giving testosterone therapy to post-menopausal women, or checking the size of their G-spot in ultrasounds, to see if it gets bigger and gives them different kinds of orgasms. Hallelujah! Praise the Adam! Here's Michelle Kovacevic, 
to talk about whether science and religion can coexist. God does not exist. How many of you would actually believe me if I said that I had proof that God does not exist? Not many, I imagine. Spiritual well-being may not be considered as important as the issues of war, political corruption, refugees and the like, but I'm sure that everyone of us in this room has at some point questioned our beliefs. Are we being naive to believe in God? Is God just a figment of our imaginations, created solely for the purpose of providing humans with an answer? Paradoxically, science is not as tangible as it seems. There are many scientific theories which have not yet been proven. Despite what you may think, I am not here to convince you that God does not exist or that science cannot be believed, but to convince you that despite their flaws, science and religion are indeed congruous. We are led to believe by society and by the media that science and religion are exclusive, that you can either only believe in God or only believe in science. Well, superficially, one would say that indeed science and religion really don't have that much in common. But look beneath the surface and you'll find that they have more in common than you think. Regardless of whether you believe in one god or many gods, religion is defined as reverence for a supernatural power regarded as the creator and governor of the universe. We see much criticism of religion in the media. However, somewhat hypocritically, we vilify atheists. That an atheist is a person without beliefs or morals, simply a purposeless creature. The word science comes from the Latin word scientia, meaning knowledge. Science is all around us. The lights in your room, this microphone, your mobile phones, are all products of scientific knowledge. However, science is not all black and white. Asking a physicist whether light is a wave or a particle will result in an answer similar to, well, it's both and neither, a vagueness that is usually negatively attributed to the more pious among us. But in a more personal sense, if I break you up into just atoms, is that all that you are? Science can explain the finite, the mechanics of your body and how it works. Religion is the infinite, the inexplicable, your conscience, your soul. Without both of these aspects intertwining to create you, are you still considered a living and feeling human being? Without science, religion has no logic. Blind faith results in no impartiality, which could have been critical in avoiding such tragedies as when innovative alchemists were executed by the church for their blasphemy, or when so-called witches were burned at the stake. But without religion, science knows no boundaries of right or wrong. It is simply what is. Look at the event of World War II, of Joseph Mengele's horrific, supposedly scientific experiments on children. It is these extremists who take the word of their religious scriptures or scientific research literally and are further driving the stake between science and religion. It was actually when I was watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire that I realised the connection between science, religion and a quest for knowledge. Picture this. Eddie had just asked a $250,000 question. Respisere is the Latin base of which English word? And infamously, before the audience was informed of the answer, Eddie cut to a commercial break. I mean, I couldn't just sit there waiting for the answer. I was desperate to know, so I raced to the study to find an encyclopedia. 
It was at that moment that I realised how we as humans are becoming increasingly voracious for knowledge. As I ran to the study, I thought of myself as man racing to discover the truth, the origins of our lives. We're trying to answer those fundamental questions. Why are we here? Where did we come from? And what is the meaning of life? So perhaps the method of finding the truth can differ, whether it be logical or spiritual. But the answer for which they're striving is ultimately the same. To quote Albert Einstein, a renowned physicist but also a pious man, Science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. At the core of both science and religion is a quest for knowledge, a search for answers to the same questions but using different approaches. Oh, and just in case you were wondering, the answer is respect. That was Michelle Kovacevic saying people that practice religion and the people that practice science should also practice respect. Einstein also said, I am a deeply religious non-believer. This is a somewhat new kind of religion. I have never imputed to nature a purpose or a goal or anything that could be understood as anthropomorphic. What I see in nature is a magnificent structure that we can comprehend only very imperfectly and that must fill a thinking person with a feeling of humility. This is a genuinely religious feeling that has nothing to do with mysticism. The idea of a personal God is quite alien to me and seems even naive. Albert Einstein also said, A man's ethical behaviour should be based effectually on sympathy, education and social ties. No religious basis is necessary. Man would indeed be in a poor way if he had to be restrained by fear of punishment and hope of reward after death. Listening to Diffusion Science Radio, Diffusion at 2SER.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is the latest in the science of orgasms. A study has found that people who have had their spinal cord severed can still enjoy sex. This contradicts decades of traditional thought and therapy. Those who can't feel anything below the waist were told to give up on a sex life. Dr. Marker Sipsky Alexander published reports in 2001 and 2006 that about half of the men and women studied had orgasms in the lab, despite suffering different types of spinal cord injury. They were alone with adult videos and encouraged to stimulate themselves by hand or vibrator. Rutgers University's Komis Saruk and retired Rutgers professor Beverly Whipple believe this may be happening because of a connection from genitals to brain that bypasses the spinal cord, the vagus nerve network. On investigation in rats, they found that the vagus nerves form an alternative network to the spinal cord that allows signals to get to the brain. Vagus nerves are named after vagabonds who wander around without a plan, because the vagus nerves are distributed around the body all over the place. They start at the base of the brain, they go down the neck and stretch to all the major organs, 
and, in female rats at least, to the uterus and cervix. If vagus nerves also reach human pelvises, genital signals could hopscotch over the spinal cord and still reach the brain. In a 2004 study, Commissarek and Whipple worked with four women with shattered spinal cords. Each stimulated her own cervix with a fake phallus, while the researchers used functional magnetic resonance image scanning to measure their brain activity. Despite their severed spinal cords, all women reported feeling the touch of the stimulator. The sensation at the cervix was reaching their brain. What's more, in the scans, their brains lit up in an area where vagus nerve signals are processed, and three of the four volunteers experienced an orgasm. This wasn't supposed to be possible. To get a clean brain image of a person reaching climax, they compared these brain images with those of women who were able to have orgasms by thought alone. It's a cleaner brain image because the signals from moving their hands and arms aren't lighting up the image to confuse things. Orgasm by thought alone. How would you test that? In 1992, they published their original study of 10 women who could reach orgasm by mental stimulation alone. They found that despite the lack of physical stimulation, the women's heart rate doubled, their blood pressure went up, their pupils dilated, and their pain threshold went up. They really did get aroused and reach an enjoyable climax just by thinking in the right way. Brain scans from a more recent study have shown that the same regions of the brain light up for thought orgasms as in women who have vaginal or clitoral orgasms. They found that orgasms elicit strong activity in the nucleus accumbens, the reward centre, which also lights up in response to nicotine, chocolate, cocaine and music, in the cerebellum, which helps coordinate muscle tension, and parts of the hypothalamus, which releases oxytocin, the trust and social bonding hormone. Some areas of the cortex that respond to pain also responded during orgasm, which of course lets speculation run wild. Perhaps it's related to the fact that people often have pained expressions at the time of orgasm, known as beautiful agony. Or perhaps it's related to some people's association of sex and pain. The amygdala, the brain's emotional centre, and the hippocampus, which deals with memory, also light up. In the late 1990s, Dr. Gert Holstieg, a neurologist at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, recruited volunteers and their sexual partners who would stimulate them in the lab. This seems a more humane and enlightened way to do orgasm research than the American practice of using volunteers alone. To measure brain activity, the researchers used positron emission tomography scanners, which require obsessive attention to timing. The stimulators in the couple were asked to induce an orgasm in their lucky receivers within a two-minute window with an eight-minute advance warning. The couples were told to practice at home first. It sounds like a premise for a high-rating documentary. The results showed certain regions in the front of the brain are shutting down during orgasm, especially one just behind the left eyeball. Researchers have long noticed the damage to this area, the lateral orbitofrontal cortex, the one behind the left eyeball, can leave people with wildly antisocial and impulsive tendencies, including hypersexuality. Hypersexuality is diagnosed when someone has such a high interest in sex that it's considered a clinical disorder. Hypersexuality is a controversial diagnosis that seems a relic of more Puritan times. Yet sexual addiction 
with its extra definition of upsetting your ability to function, and the linguistic connection to drug addiction makes it an uncontroversial and politically acceptable diagnosis. The temporal lobes of the brain also showed damped activity. In fact, the less activity these regions showed, the more sexually aroused the women felt. These deactivations might explain the appeal of autoerotic asphyxiation, where people control their breathing, or in extreme strangle themselves, to increase their sexual pleasure and bring on an orgasm. Depriving a brain of blood during sex not only provides a dangerous thrill, but also shuts down key regions, leading to addictive orgasmic euphorias. Tilly Boleyn and Evan Shapiro face up to the science of identity matching. You know how computer recognition software, since we all started having illusions of great terror coming upon us from every single angle, that we're sort of using, you know, in, in airports there's more security, right. in all sorts of places. We want computers to kind of go off as soon as there's an indication that that someone looks like a terrorist. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's, there's this new research that they're proposing that instead of using one single shot of a person as an identifier, we should replace it with an image that combines several shots of that one person, sort of making a morphed sort of... Oh, that's cool. Then they can kind of do a matrix type thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, when they tested this out on uh, current facial recognition software, it actually increased the computer's ability to recognise a person by 100%. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Now, this new technique was actually discovered by psychologists. Don't get me started. Oh. And <laughs> they were looking into why humans are usually great at recognising someone they know, but we're not, like in a photo, being able to identify them. But if you're shown someone that you don't know, and then you're shown some more photographs and asked whether it's that person, it's a lot more difficult, okay, because you're not familiar we haven't with Because we haven't got the whole picture. Yeah, exactly. And because if you're trying to identify someone you're not already familiar with, the conditions of the photo itself become very important. Things like the light, the expression on the person, the angles, you know, like it, it, it yeah, complicates those, the situation. Absolutely. Yeah, so what these researchers have done is, as I say, morphed several photos into one and making it an average photo of the person and it's a lot easier to identify. Now, they tested it on the same software that we use at the Australian Customs Service and you are going to love this. The, it's, it's publicly available on the internet as well. Sweet. It's got this feature where you can go and upload a picture of yourself and the software scans 31,000 known celebrities and it provides you with a list of the celebrities you most resemble. Excellent. It would be a very long list for me. Obviously. <laughs> now, the researchers used this, um, this particular feature to upload one single shot of celebrities they knew were in the database. And the computer got it right half the time. 
Then they uploaded morphed images of those celebrities and it got it right 100% of the time, right? Yeah. Pretty big jump. That's a big jump. I submitted a photo of myself, of yeah. course. I mean, it's research. <laughs> yeah, and what'd you get? Well, I got, I got three matches. <clears throat> Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> yes. Nicole Kidman. <laughs> and... It's uncanny. <laughs> Peter O'Toole. <laughs> you got Peter O'Toole. I got Reese Witherspoon. Hey, but Nicole I want to want to know is what era... Yes, the old old era, let me tell you. Well, at least that was the photo they returned. I don't look anything like them, Evan. Uh, I'm trying to convince myself that the Peter O'Toole was a red herring because I didn't morph a lot of images of myself into one. So it's not like I was really testing the results. I think you need to put a lot more effort into this test because I think people would love to to get out there and test it. People can go. I I got this uh, from ABC Science Online, so you can go to abc.net.au slash science and find the story about the computer recognising Mr. Average and link through from there. I'm, I'll also give you the link. I'm thinking of another great application for this. Mm. Wouldn't it be great on uh, dating websites? Oh. <laughs> because no one ever because looks like... Even they already are so close to the truth anyway. I don't understand why you would need... <laughs> That's right. There's no, there's no... People don't hide behind no. uh, things on the internet. It's amazing. They're so honest, and and um, you know the headshot very rarely reveals um, anything but a, uh, the rest of a person that looks just like that. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's been my experience. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's right. I'm a 17 year old nymphus. Well, a big thanks to Tilly and Evan from the Monday and Friday Daily Shows. Do you drink lots of coffee? Do you really like tea? Do you take caffeine pills? Do you drink guarana? Do you drink energy drinks? Well, caffeine's very popular because it can make you more productive sometimes. It can get you going, it can give you energy, it can keep you awake and alert. How would you like to optimise your caffeine intake so you can optimise your performance? Caffeine largely works through the adenosine receptor antagonism. This means your brain's adenosine stays around longer, letting you stay awake and aware. According to the 2004 study, low-dose repeated caffeine administration for circadian phase-dependent performance degradation during extended wakefulness, conducted at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Harvard Medical School, Boston. The best dose to take is about 20 milligrams per hour. So don't have a big cup of coffee, but have lots of little cups of coffee once an hour. It takes 45 minutes to be fully absorbed from the gut and then it's stable for about an hour, and then it takes about four hours before it's completely cleared away from the body. Caffeine improves simple mental tasks, but it can make complex ones more difficult. Caffeine may increase the speed with which you work, it may decrease your lapses of attention, and it may even help your recall, but it's less likely to benefit more complex cognitive functions, and may even hurt some of the other ones you might try. Caffeine seems to offer some protection against type 2 diabetes, Parkinson's disease, and Alzheimer's disease. However, it increases risk of heart disease and blood pressure disorders. A study from the Netherlands caused memory problems by giving subjects the brainwashing drug scoplamine and then saw how much caffeine it took to help those memory problems. It was better than the placebo. Keep that in mind the next time someone dopes you with scoplamine. Researchers also dosed people with the anti-blood pressure drug clonidine and found that caffeine was good at helping the memory problems that the drug induces. Which is interesting, because there's not very much literature that admits that clonidine causes 
memory problems. Caffeine works better with sugar, according to Northumbria University in the UK, justifying all those high-energy caffeinated drinks. Now, caffeine can cause high blood pressure, liver problems, and of course the withdrawal symptoms that go with any addictive drug. Caffeine can also make you anxious and cause sleeping problems. Using caffeine pills to get past the symptoms while stopping your caffeinated habit might be a more controllable way to quit. Green tea has small amounts of caffeine, and it may be an easy hot drink to switch to. Replace the caffeinated drink with some other drink so you don't get dehydrated, and so you're changing your habit instead of the harder task of replacing something you're doing with nothing. Going cold turkey leads to withdrawal symptoms, which make it very hard to stay clean. Caffeine withdrawal can be brutal, with headaches, tiredness, trouble concentrating, clumsiness, and even flu-like symptoms. Better to just avoid the stuff. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild passionate prayers, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Tilly Berlin, Evan Shapiro, and Michelle Kovacevic. I produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Ingredients. Zinc trisodium aspartate, sorbitol and bisulfate, oxide beta-carotene, lactic acid carabine. Grade A milk emulsified, maltodextrin alkalide, silicon dioxalide, lots of sugar. Hey, all right. Calcified synthetic salt, artificial barley malt, glycerin and aspartate, folic acid. That tastes great. Monosodium glutamate, dehydrated calciumate, soybean oil, butter fat, caramel sensor, all of that. Hooray for sugar, cause we love it. Chocolate chips, we want more of it. Cakes and ice cream, want to shove it down our throats real fast. Here's a candy bar, you tried it? Hey, let's all see what's inside it. Gelatinized triglycerin, phosphate, soybean, lecithin, dioxalite, tricilicon, dipped in chocolate. Bring it on! Citrus enzymes, BHT, powdered milk. Sounds good to me! Baking soda, carob gum, carbohydrate, yummy yum! yum. Monosodium glutamate, zinc disodium alginate, whole grain flour, yeast and fat. Time to eat it, I'll do that. We like sweets a lot, so give us all you got, and we'll stuff them in our bodies till they make our insides rot.